still in Hebrews 10. I'm going to make our move through the chapter. Um, I'm going to be trying to finish this chapter in the next couple weeks. I, I made a mistake when I started Hebrews. Um, I might have said this last week or the week before. I don't remember. Uh, the the goal was to do almost a chapter a week, and I we did pretty good in the first eight chapters, but uh, I, f- I felt like we missed a lot, which means one of these days in the distant future, we'll come back to Hebrews, and we'll spend a couple years on it. Um so I'm, 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 I'm slowing down a little bit, but not a two-year rate slowdown. Um, so my goal uh, starting off this week was to get through chapter 10, uh, but that didn't work. Um, we're not going to get very far today. Uh, so, but for the sake, of, the sake of the passage, because I feel like it is very important to see it in its, in its whole entirety... I want to read 19 through the end of the chapter and and also kind of give you break this chapter the rest of this chapter up into in three pieces so you can see how we're going to be going in through the rest of it um, but we're going to st- stop short just in the first section today so l- let me read the word of the Lord verses 19 through 39 uh, and then we'll begin with a prayer. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the, the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. For if we go on, verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury, a fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32, but recall the former former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach 
and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteousness, but my righteousness, one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Pray with me. Father, would you, um, would you preach a sermon better than the one I'm about to preach? Would you speak in a way that I cannot? Would you open the eyes of the hearts of your people and would you bring about life to someone here who has none by the power of your gospel the power of the Holy Spirit for Christ's sake amen okay so look at look at this section and I, I just want to split it up for you in three sections of how we're going to attack this the rest of this chapter so more than likely you have a heading before 19 Um, the first section of this last half of this chapter we're gonna we're gonna say is verses 19 through 25 and we're gonna look at that and think of that as an exhortation right Um, you can when you when you hear me say the word exhortation Think of a strong encouragement. And not, not like, oh, pat on the back, but like a strong encouragement. Like, almost, it's, not a, it's not a command, but it feels like it. It's a don't miss this kind of uh, encouragement. Okay, so 19 through 25 is going to be that encouragement, that exhortation. And then we get to 26 through 31, and we get... A caution. And it's going to be directly related to what we've been looking at uh, all throughout Hebrews, but specifically in chapter 10. And so the, the caution or the warning comes from 26 to 31. And then in 32 through uh, basically the end of the chapter, we see what I'm going to call application. Okay, the truth of what we've seen in the encouragement of the exhortation and the warning and what it how it plays out in life. In verses 32 through 39 and at the end, um, verses 39, well, 27, 28, or I'm sorry, 37, 38 and 39 are the transition point to the next chapter uh, the chapter of faith, and so we'll see a conclusion in those few uh, last few verses, which more than likely will tie to the application, 
when we get to it. So that that's how we're going to approach this chapter, the rest of this chapter. Um, and these themes that have been in my head as I've read through these, I want to give you as well. And we're not really going to touch on these today, but they you'll be seeing them as we finish this chapter. Number one, Christianity is a we, not a me. Christianity is a we, not a me. Number two, God is our reward or our enemy. It's one or the other. He is our reward or he is our enemy. We're either drawing near him or shrinking back from him. And number three, Christ is key. He unlocks it all. That's what we'll see as we finish this section. Um, so now, let's go jump back up to verse 19. And I, 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 the majority of our time today is going to be focused on one word. Verse 19, therefore. That's it. That's going to be the majority of what we are going to look at today. Um, because... The idea that comes out of the transitional word, therefore, is essential to the Christian faith, to living life. Um, When we see the word, therefore, we're understanding that a transition in what is being said is taking place. And when we see a therefore we realize that we've probably heard a bunch of stuff that's really important theologically. And now the author or the preacher or the writer is going to come out and say, now what? Or this is what you need to do. Or this is how you need to respond. The therefore is always typically in scripture separating truth and response. And we could go through many passages, especially in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, of a of a of the giving of truth, and then a call to respond to that truth. Uh, let me give you an example. We we don't use the word therefore. I think it's a shame. I think we should. But this is this would be an example, uh, darling. It's 20 degrees outside. They said it's going to be snowing. Therefore, you should probably wear your heavy coat today. Do you see the truth? And then separated by the therefore, the response. Um, you, you, you and your siblings are young and you're exploring in the woods and you come across a cave and you see bones laying on the side of the cave. And someone and you're like, let's go in. And someone goes, hey, hang on a second. The cave is dark. And there's bones beside it. Therefore, let's not go in. Do you, do you see the, the truth that exists, that is there, that is in front of you? And then the therefore says, let's respond this way. Make sense? Uh, as we've, If you go and read chapter 10, if you read Hebrews, especially starting in 7, 8, 9, and 10, you're going to be feeling this tension being built up because it's four, three and a half chapters of, of 
glorious theology of the priesthood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the temple of Christ, and the and the and the preacher is just he is just packing it in, and you're like, okay, you know, it's like he's feeding us. I'm getting full. I'm getting full. You're giving me all this information, and then you get to 19, and he says, therefore, and you're like, okay, what are we gonna do with this? What are we gonna do with all this glorious knowledge? Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this tension has built up. The truth of the work of Christ. The truth of the saving work of the triune God. Right? Has been given to us. And then this. We get to this point where he's like. Now this is how you ought to respond to it. Now let me just say this. Respond you must. But let me just say this. Respond you will. You, it isn't whether you respond, but which way you will respond. Okay? You're always responding to the truth that is in front of you. You're either responding positively or negatively. Does that make sense? See, think of it this way. This rhythm that we see in scripture and that you actually see in life uh, goes like this. Truth revealed, response made. Your life, your life is just a series of those events. Whether they're events or information, you've, you're put in a moral dilemma. You must respond. You're given something, an opportunity. You must respond. You see something beautiful. You will respond, either rightly or wrongly. God reveals, we respond. Or I like to think of it as revelation and response. That's how we live. Whether... In a pagan sense or a Christian sense. You either respond in faith or you respond in sin. Truth is presented and we must base we must act based on that truth. You see a beautiful sunset, you respond. You see a child born, you respond. You see a child uh, die, you respond. Uh, all we cannot escape. This reality of truth or revelation and response. But here's the problem, and you've already seen that it's there. We are a fallen, sinful people. Romans 1 says we see the sunset, and what do we do? We worship the sunset. Right? Uh, as we've looked in, in our book, uh, that book we've been going through uh, for our men, men's meeting and women's fellowship, we had the example of witnessing the awe of the Grand Canyon. What's the right response? God, be glory in this beautiful work of art. What's the wrong response? I'm a pretty big deal. I'm glad I got to come here. I get to tell everybody about it. We, we as fallen sinful people, respond in a selfish, prideful, arrogant way 
our confession of faith as a church states that we by nature are utterly void of holiness and are positively inclined to evil. That's a harsh statement. Let me read it again. Mankind, that would be you and I, we by nature are utterly void of holiness and are positively inclined to evil. So whenever the truth of God comes in front of that, a wrong response always follows. And because of that, the Bible states clearly, and we talked about this Sunday night, because we respond wrongly to the the truth or the gloriousness or the divinity of God in what he's done or what he said or what he's created, we've sinned and fallen short of that very glory of God. Meaning, the correct response to any truth from God gives glory to God, but the incorrect response falls short and gives God and fails to give God glory. A correct response to any truth gives God glory. An incorrect response fails to give Him glory. But here's the beauty of this. God doesn't say, well, shucks, I guess I won't be glorified then. That's not his response. Well, I guess I'm just not going to get glory from my creatures whom I made in my image. I'll just let the birds and the rocks and, and the animals give me glory because they, they're, they're acting in how I created them. No, no, no. He says, I will redeem them. I will sanctify, right? I, Hebrews 10, I will sanctify, I will set apart a people for my own glory. I will set them apart from the fallen world. I will be their God and they will be my people. How? So I will offer my son as a blood sacrifice, as a payment for their horrible responses to my truth. I'll forgive them of those horrible responses. I'll forgive them of their rebellion, of their sins, of their disobedience by the death of my son. Oh, and you know what? Because I want them to respond correctly, because I want them to savor, I will give them my spirit so that they will respond as they should. So they will love me. So they will obey me. Because I show them who I truly am and who they truly are and that they truly need a crucified and resurrected Savior. Is this not what it means to be a Christian, right? To know God, to know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom He has sent, to know Him, but it's not, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop in just knowing God and Jesus Christ in whom He sent. It, it means to then love and live and long for Him this is not is this not the point of the book that we're reading the seeing and savoring Jesus the seeing is the knowing the truth has been revealed it is before us and we know it and we see it but it doesn't stop there and then we savor and savoring is the right response to that truth Is this not the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has redeemed us from our ignorance and our disobedience, has forgiven us and planted us within us the truth and the proper response to his truth for him, for his glory? So if we find ourselves 
at this transition point in verse 19. We've been told of this. We've studied this. We've looked at this for three weeks. The redemption of God, the will of the Father, the work of the Son, the witness of the Spirit. So what are you going to do with it? How are you going to respond? And we must respond and we must respond correctly. He says, therefore, brothers. In verse 22, he gets to the, the action. Look at it. And I've said it a million times in the last three weeks. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. Now, I promised that I would put some meat on that bone. And we would think what that means. What it means to draw near. Now, I want to tell you this, but I want to show it to you so you don't just take it from me. To draw near to God is to be in the presence of God for the sake of His worship. To draw near to God to worship Him. Now we're going to make sure we understand what that word worship means. And we'll do this by looking at the last couple of chapters. Turn to Hebrews 9, verse 9. And if you remember in Hebrews 9, the writer is trying to explain to us the way they used to worship and how it was ineffective. And and then now introducing to us the new way to worship in Christ. Look what he says in verse 9. Let's start at, uh, let's see, let's start at 6. Let's go ahead and start at 6. Chapter 9, verse 6. These preparations, so we're speaking of the old, these preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Hang on with me. We're almost there. Which is symbolic for the present age. Here we go. According to this arrangement, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But dealing only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what's the goal of that of that priest? It's to worship. It's to serve God in his presence. But there is a problem, right? Now look at verses 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So go back. Go back to 9 and look how I said it. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot... What are those gifts and offerings? Blood of bulls and goats, right? Cannot perfect the what? The conscience of the worshiper. It cannot affect 
the inside of him who brings the offering. But verse 14 says, But the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, look what it does, purify our conscience, hello, from dead works to serve. That word there is key, serve. That is the word worship. To worship the living God. Christ's blood has been shed and poured out on us that we might draw near to God in service and worship to Him. Look at chapter the beginning of chapter 10. Verse 1 and 2. This is sort of a, a, just a reiteration of what we just saw, just in different language. For since the law, the old, what, right, has but a shadow of the good things to come out of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice, sacrifices that are continually offered every year, what, make perfect those who draw near. To what? God. Into his presence, into the holy of holies. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the, what? Worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So the, the, the goal is to cleanse him who draws near the worshiper. Now let's look at verse 2 again. I'm sorry, 22 of chapter 10. Our response is to draw near... I would say to worship, to serve, but how or on what term with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want you to understand that all of the talk that we've done in 7, 8, 9, and 10, it's not theoretical. It's not like this lofty understanding that we're trying to obtain. I want you to understand that as we've gone through 7, 8, 9, and especially 10, that God is trying to explain to you that he wants you to come to him and worship. He wants you to come to him and exalt him. He wants you... He wants to encourage you to set yourself before him and say, I am your servant. I am your worshiper. Now, here's where we have to make sure we understand when I keep saying the word worship. that I am not talking about singing. That's not what I'm talking about. Now, we can worship as we sing. Right? Singing is one way of our worship. It is one of many ways that we worship. But when we single out worship as just singing, like we have our time of worship and then we have the sermon, we reduce the other things that we do in our worship service. And that, have you ever thought about where did that term worship service come from? We, we get this idea that the worships, like we go to McDonald's, we want good service, Right? So we have in our minds that when we come, we're being served. No. We're coming to a worship service to serve God. 
You don't walk in these doors saying, I'm going to have it my way. You come in these doors and say, God, your way. You are the one who deserves to be worshipped. You're the one who deserves my service. I am your servant. Prayer is a form of worship. Preaching is a form of worship. Our Christian fellowship, when we eat, when we gather together, when we clean this building, when it's done for the sake of God, it is a form of worship. And how you walk out these doors and you live your life today, tomorrow, and the next day, moment by moment, you have, you have an opportunity to respond to the truth by worshiping your God in obedience through faith in Jesus Christ. Moment by moment. Every second of your life is an opportunity to worship. Now, how do you... There's just a sentence to kind of keep in your mind when you want to think about what worship is. Worship is rightfully responding to the truth of God for the sake of God. Not, not being confused by what the world is saying and not doing what we're doing because we like it or it's nostalgic or it's tradition. Worship is rightfully responding to the truth of God for the sake of God's glory and His exaltation. Now, I, I, I emphasize rightfully in this, worship is a rightful responding um, because we can worship Him wrongly. Uh, and I, I want you to be aware that that is a very easy thing to do. A very easy thing to do. We can approach him in a manner that is unworthy of him. Now, look at verse 22 and see how he phrases this. Let us draw near with a true heart. A true heart. Well, what does he mean by heart? Well, in biblical language, the heart is the center of a person. Not not you know the 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 physical thing that pumps the blood it that is the center of giving of our life to our bodies but when we speak of the heart in the scriptures we speak of like who we really are on the inside you know when we're having a conversation and we're like well the heart of the matter is we're getting to the point like the 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 real core of it. That's when we speak about the heart. That's what we mean in the scriptures. It's the defining aspect of the topic or the person. Well, the problem is, is that the human heart, and it's the way that we have just described it, the Bible does not paint a pretty picture of the human heart. Uh, it actually describes the heart as sick. Deceitful. Jesus basically says it is the origin of your sin. Right? It's not what goes in the body, but it, it is what that comes from the heart. 
uh, a Protestant reformer alongside Martin Luther uh, named John Calvin wrote this about the heart. He said very and he said it a lot better, but he said that the heart is an idol factory. Constantly creating idols for man to what? Worship. To worship. You and I must not approach God with that heart. We cannot. For it's not true. That heart desires itself. Right? That heart looks for, as Dan says, me, myself, and I. That is what that heart is after its ultimate aim is what it wants what it thinks is right now that's why we have to be careful in our approach because what we feel will sometimes lead us to sin when our feelings are based on that fallen heart Just think about being a teenager and how you feel about that certain someone and how did that work out. We feel a lot of things throughout our lives. And the majority of them are wrong. That's called Disney theology. Do what's in your heart. No, don't do what's in your heart. Because our hearts apart from the Spirit of God, are sick, deceitful, and the origin of our sin. We must only approach God with a heart that has, look at the rest of the verse again, back, back at 22, what does this heart look like, the true heart? Hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These are the hearts that we approach God with. Your worship, your service to God must come from the new heart. That's the new heart that God gives. The heart that is alive, that beats. He removes that stony, cold heart and gives you a heart of flesh that is alive. It's the one that he gives you by his spirit that causes you, as Ezekiel 36 says, to walk in his ways and obey his rules. And you might be like, come on, you're getting a little, you're just, you're just kind of talking in the air. Give me something to hold on to and grasp on to. What do you, what, how, how do I act with this heart? Well, you feel that heart with the fuel. An engine does not run unless it has fuel. How do I know if I'm acting in my old heart or my new? Well, what are you fueling it with? What are you ingesting? If your steady diet is the world, its wisdom, and your feelings, you will always act in your wicked fallen heart. But when your intake is every word from the mouth of God, that fuels the true heart, the new heart. And unless you, unless you put any gas in the tank, that heart won't run. 
You cannot say, I'm going to live a Christian life and living a life of worship and service unto God without putting in the fuel of the Word of God. It can't happen. It won't turn over. Feed your heart with the Scriptures and let the truth of God, right? That's what we're taught. We need the truth. We have to have the truth, the revelation, God to reveal. Let the truth of God direct your heart to respond, to worship in obedience and in truth. This is why he is like, why does he read so much scripture in our worship service? Well, that's why. If we respond to me getting you all pumped up and excited, you're going to respond with the old heart, the sick heart. But when we hold out at the beginning of our worship service the word of God to call us to worship, to redirect our gaze from the world that we've been in, and maybe it's had an effect on us, and we come in here and we need the truth of who God is and what He has done, then we can respond rightly with a true heart. That's why we sing songs that are full of Scripture. Even our responses need to be biblical. That's why why when we pray, we want to learn how to pray by reading the prayers and the Scriptures, by reading the Psalms. We want to sing based on the truth. We want to pray based on the truth. We want to preach based on the truth. We want to teach based on the truth. Singing, praying, preaching, teaching are responses to the truth that has been revealed. That is worship. So let's conclude. Let's conclude this by looking at Romans 12 and see parallel here. Romans 12, verse 1. Same message, different perspective. See the pattern of truth and response as we read this. Right? How it, the, the therefore. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore. He's going to make an appeal. He's going he's gonna to call you to respond. And he's, it's a transition that therefore, if you've had any time in Romans 1, 2, 3 to 11, you know that you have just been fed a diet of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ like you never had before. And Paul's like, now we're going to respond. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's, what we're, that's, that's the, the truth that you just took in. The mercies of God. Here it is. Here's the response. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now I want you to notice this act of response of presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. And think about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the old way of worship. Where did they take the offering? Where did they take the sacrifice? Into the Holy of holies. 
the presence of God. And so what did he tell us in Hebrews 10? Draw near. You've got to go in. You've got to come to him. You've got to seek him. You've got to want to be in his presence. You cannot present your bodies as a living sacrifice unless you draw near to God. But now, we don't go through a veil. We go through the torn flesh of Christ, covered by the blood of Christ, into the Holy of Holies, which is what? It's not a room. It's the throne room of God. Enter in the throne room of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How do you want it? Holy and acceptable to God. And look at this, which is your spiritual Worship, or your translation might say what? Service. It's like, what does God want from me? What does he want from me? What does he want me to do? He wants you. He wants your life. He wants you to live a life of seeing the truth and responding to it in Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's the only way to live and present your life acceptable and holy to God. And you're thinking, okay, but Luke, you got to help me out a little bit more. How do I do that? Verse 2, we get back to this idea of what are you intaking? What is your ingestion? Do not be conformed to the world. If, if you ingest the things, ways, and words of the world, you will become like the world. Holy and acceptable? Don't think so. Nope. If all you are ingesting is your own thoughts and, and feelings and affections, see, that's where we might get in trouble. We might see the dangers of the world, but we make ourselves the arbiter of truth. We make ourselves the authority. We make the rules. And we live by them. And that's the same amount of danger as following the world. You follow the world or you follow yourself, wholly unacceptable is out the window. But, he says, how can I be wholly unacceptable? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Ingest the truths of God from his word and you will be transformed into a servant of God. A living offering of sacrifice for him. You will understand the things that are pleasing to him, right? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you will know what pleases God, and then you will serve Him rightly through obedience. You will love, live, and long for Him. You will be a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God as you draw near to Him. I cannot emphasize this enough. If you are not drawing near to God, you are not responding to Him rightly. And everything you intake in a sermon or reading your Bible or in a podcast is in vain. If you are not responding by drawing near to him 
in order to worship and serve him. Now, for the sake of moving forward into next week, look at verse 3. And I'm going to read verses 3 through 13 just to close us. That's going to close us and lead us into next week, but it's also going um, going to lead us into coming to the table together. So before I read this, know this. Next week we're going to see that Christianity is a we, not a me. We respond as we are called in Hebrews 10.22. The response is for us to draw near. For us to hold fast. For us to encourage one another. We don't respond as a lone sheep. We respond as the body of Christ. We're called to worship him together as a body. And this is by God's design and it is one we cannot neglect. Look at verse 3. As we have just been told to be worshipers and servants of the Lord... To give our lives as a living sacrifice. Instantly he goes to this. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Nine, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdoing one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord one another. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You cannot worship alone. You have been called into the body of Christ, and this we will look to next week. But now I want us to transition to the table. This is the table where we come together as the body of Christ. We come with true hearts. This is an act of worship. This is drawing near to God. We come with true hearts sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ, Washed by the word of God. We come to this table. You come to this table to proclaim the death of Christ. You come to this table making a profession of faith. In agreement with those who come with you. He's offered by the Father in our place. Appeasing the wrath of God that our sins demand. Our sins that demand the body and blood of Christ. So we come, we come to this table remembering the slain lamb. 
But we remember him as the slain lamb who is what? Standing. Victorious. He has has won our victory. And this is a celebration, a remembrance that he is the line of Judah who has conquered sin and death. We come together in a covenant with God and in with one another. When you stand up and you walk and you take of the elements, you come as a brother and sister in Christ. And we come together as the family of God. We come to this table as one. We come to this table as one in worship to remember our Lord, our God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So who can come? Who can come and eat? This table is for those who belong to Christ. Who seek to draw near to God through Christ. It is for those who have heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ and has believed. It is for those who have heard and repented. It is for those who have made their faith known publicly through baptism. It is for the church of God that this table sits here. And I say this every Sunday that we take of this supper. This table is closed for those who are outside of Christ, but the table is closed only. But Christ is open for you. And he he calls you to believe and repent. But you must understand that that's not an invitation that you can just toss aside. Because he commands every man and woman everywhere to believe and repent. It is not just an invitation that you can pass by, but it is a command to come or fall into the hands of the living God. And so I urge any who sit here today who are outside of Christ, to come to Him. To come in faith and repentance, trusting in Him. To cry out to Him, have mercy on me, forgive me, and follow Him. And in that proclamation, speak to the world and the body of Christ through baptism. Obey Him in faith and repentance and baptism. And the next time we eat, this table will be open for you. For Christ is God, our Lord, and our Savior. Brother Dan, will you come and pray for the elements?